You're listening to the Yoga Inspiration Podcast with me, your host, Kino McGregor. I created this series to keep you inspired to get on the mat every day so that you can practice yoga and change your world, starting from the inside out, one breath at a time. Thanks so much for listening. Your support means everything to me. Hi everyone, it's Kino here. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Yoga Inspiration Podcast. It really means a lot to me that you take time to share this journey together. And it keeps me inspired to read your messages of support. So please keep sending them and remember to leave a review if you haven't done that yet. This talk is one that came after a one-week Mysore intensive where I discussed a little bit about the Arishad Vargas or the six enemies of the heart and how we can work with the yoga practice as an antidote for this hardening of the heart that can happen sometimes. We follow with a student Q&A and I hope you find both the discussion and the Q&A relevant for your personal practice. If you want to practice with me online these days, then I look forward to seeing you on omstars.com, on YouTube, and also in some Zoom classes. You can find all that info on my website at kinoyoga.com. I've got a new book called Get Your Yoga On, and it would mean so much to me if you would check that out. It's available for pre-order on Amazon, and it's a totally different approach to the practice than I've ever taken before, something really, really new. Thanks everyone for joining, checking in, and I hope you enjoy this episode and stay inspired to keep practicing. Hi everyone. You're all on mute, so it just waves. (laughs) Good. Super. Well, welcome everyone. And thanks so much for sharing the practice this week. Let's uh, just initiate the space here with the opening prayer. So if you'll close the eyes. Vande Guru Nam Charanada Vinde Sandarshita Swatmasukava Bode Nishreyase Jangalikayamane Samsara Hala Hala Mohashantie Abahu Purushakaram Shenkachakra Siddharinam Sahasrashirasam Shwetam Pranamami Patanjalim Good. You can let your eyes open and come on back. Excellent. Hi, Valentina. Welcome. Good. Good. Okay. So it's been a week of practice. And during this week, We have all experienced, myself included, throughout the practice week, some really intense highs and some really intense lows, some moments where we feel really, really inspired, and other moments when maybe we feel frustrated or a little bit irritated, a little bit like maybe we feel like we're facing some obstacles and doubt and confusion arises. So I feel that the more that the longer time I spend with the practice, the more I realize that this is just how it goes. There's no steady upward trajectory of your journey in yoga. 
you know, we think that it's like climbing a mountain and we're always given this analogy that, you know, the path is very much like an uphill hike and that we climb to the top of a mountain. But unlike climbing a mountain, there's no, there's no steady linear path, neither really on a mountain hike either. Not like I've really done so many mountain hikes in my life, but every time I've done one, <clears throat> it hasn't been a straight, there aren't like, it's not a stairway to heaven, you know? So when we, when we think about our practice, the mind, particularly the analytical mind, wants to get very, very clear on what is one step after another, this step and then that step. And we, it, we want it to feel like a steady upward trajectory. So the mind, the quality of the mind, which is dualistic, the quality of the mind, which divides, the quality of the mind, which categorizes this, the voice inside your head, which is judging both yourself and your experience, is constantly making some sort of a commentary, particularly on those lows. Also making a commentary on the highs. You're just not really bothered by the commentary so much on the highs. The commentary on the highs, unfortunately, is just as dangerous as the commentary that that inner voice called the ego makes on the lows. We get used to and accustomed to that inner dialogue, but it's when we really hit the lows that we're asked to kind of come face to face with that voice inside of our head, what we, what we can kind of understand as the personification of the limited notion of self, or as we commonly refer to as the ego. In moments of difficulty, when we reach obstacles, when we feel overwhelmed, when we feel tired, when there's an injury that arises, something comes up that we feel we've been past, whether that is a physical obstacle that arises, whether that's an emotional obstacle that arises, whether we feel frustrated that it's just taking too long, whatever too long is, you know, we feel I should be, you know, I should be doing this by now. What is this? And what is, you know, what is now? And what is the should? But this is that voice, that, that commentary in our mind that's constantly judging. It's often the lows that bring us into so much doubt, that bring us into so much pain and so much suffering. Whether you sit with doubt about your physical body, this is a really common thing. I would imagine that <clears throat> at some moment, if not during the course of this week, then at some moment during the course of your asana you know, journey, you've doubted your physical capacity. You know, Am I really equipped for this? Do I really have the right body for this practice? Uh, is, is, you know, are these injuries that I have, are they ever going to heal? You know, am I ever, am I ever going to do this pose? You know, when we sit there and we wonder and we doubt our bodies and we think, you know, what about this, this body? And then we start, then we engage in various forms of negative body self-talk. And what's interesting about negative body self-talk is as someone who's practiced for more than 20 years, I, I don't think it goes away, but it certainly changes. You know, there are different things that you complain about at different points in your life. You know, one thing that I've noticed, particularly, not so much me, but my husband now, his favorite thing to complain about his body is its age, you know? So Tim, who is, um, you know, how old is Tim? He's, he's 53 and he's going to turn 54. And, you know, for him, he starts saying, ah, oh, this old man here. And I'm thinking, old man? No. Uh, if you're 90, then you can claim maybe you're old then. But the 50 is still like half life left, you know? Uh, we hope so anyway, right? We can, we can be thankful for that. But it's another form of negative self-talk. So for him, he goes into every time there's, oh, I'm tired. Oh, this old body. How many more times is it going to have to jump back? Oh, this old body. You know, how many more times is it going to have to put that leg behind the head? You know, it's been doing it for so long. 
And, you know, Tim, he talks about his body like uh, an old, uh, an ex-racer. Are we familiar with what that means? So there, there are these dogs that are unfortunately uh, put to racing called greyhounds. Everybody familiar with the greyhounds? Like the very fast running dog. So when these dogs have finished their racing career, they retire and people adopt ex-racers so they don't have to get put down. And we had some friends of ours that we met that had these greyhounds that were ex-racers and they would always walk them. And then we said to them, you know, well, so... I bet you really have to take these dogs for long, you know, enthusiastic walks to really get that energy of the greyhound out of them. And they said, nope, they're lazy. They don't do anything anymore. Uh, They ran a lot for 10 years and now uh, they want to lie on the sofa and they don't leave the sofa. We force them to go for a walk and they don't run. They don't chase anything. They don't run after anything. They just lie on the sofa all day. They want to eat and sleep and cuddle. That's it. There's no more race left in the race dog. And then Tim, he got this idea and he said, oh, this is me. I am the ex-racer. I've been moving my body for my whole lifetime. And now this old body wants to lie on the sofa. Please feed me and pet me. You know? And I thought, okay, this is maybe for one day a week. <laughs> right? But the, so this is the mind. So the mind talks to the body. Oh, this body is it like this? When I first started yoga, my most common engagement of negative self-talk was, I was never a dancer. I was never a gymnast. How am I ever going to learn how to do these crazy moves? I was never in anything physical. I'm not athletic. You know, I can't lift up. I've never lifted weights. I'd hate the idea of lifting weights. You know, I can't, I, how can I ever do this? It seemed like everybody that was good at yoga was, oh, I used to, like, like Tim, I used to be a dancer or a swimmer. So I'm going to come on. I was on the you know, Olympic gymnastic team, but I decided to take it easy and do yoga. Oh, good for you. You know, then I thought, what about me? Poor me. I am, I feel my arms are short and my butt is gigantic and I never did dance. I was never in dance team. I was never on a sports team. I never did anything like that. Actually, from, from the time that I was, I think, uh, 12 years old, I entered into this like academic program in school where they canceled fitness classes for me. So from 12 years old, I didn't even have the mandatory like junior high, go and try to exercise for 20 minute class. So when I started doing yoga, I felt like, you know, here I am. And I, I'm, it would just, I would just enter into such a negative dialogue about that. But you know, 20 years later, I can say for sure, it, it's just practice, just practice, practice, practice. Anybody's body can do anything. When you, in, when you engage and interact with doubt about your body, this is an important obstacle because it also contains the seeds of ego. Ego is identified with body. And by focusing on body, we unfortunately further entrench ourselves in this body identification. And and then we end up more and more trapped. We believe that lie that we're defined by our body and that we are our bodies and that our bodies are the, you know, the the be all and end all of our existence. And the more we engage in that negative self-talk, the more that we entrench ourselves in that, in that limited notion of self. The flip side of that, of course, is the, the positive attachment to the good feelings. You know, the positive attachment to the good feelings is a little bit more slippery to feel in the body because we do want to feel better. We do want to feel a little bit better. We do want to shift our general state into a slightly more positive state. But the attachment to being good at something physically is something that the practice eventually will work on. 
It's a very uncomfortable space. So what often needs to happen is we need to rise to a certain level where we feel like we are on top of the mountain. And then yoga, as a spiritual practice, knowing that, knowing that we've become attached to the identity of achievement based on the physical form, being this person that, oh, now I can do a handstand. Oh, now I can put my legs behind my head. Oh, now I can do a deep backbend. This I, this I, this I. Then yoga has a way of exactly at that peak moment of what we could call pride, what we could call arrogance, and, it, and sort of a, an inflation of the ego. The yoga has a way of exactly at that moment humbling us. And there are so many ways that that humility can happen. And then we get back into the negative cycle. And it's just this constant up and down that is the essence of, of what the spiritual path is about. And it's not an easy path to go on. So body, this is the first realm of doubt, doubting our own bodies. I would imagine that many of you at some moment have also doubted the method, whether the method is Ashtanga yoga or yoga in general. So this is something that almost everybody has had at some moment that question the practice. Oh, this practice, at first, you fall in love with it. You think, wow, this is amazing. I want to do it every day. And then we do it every day. And then we're like, wow, I'm really tired. You know, so I have to do it every day. And then you find out, yes, you have to do it every day, even when you're tired. Oh, really? I don't know about that, you know? So then we start to have this questioning of the method. Sometimes we start to question yoga. And then, we, and then this leads some students into switching styles of yoga. Oh, you know, I started doing Ashtanga. It was wonderful, but it was too intense for me. Then I started doing yin yoga. Then suddenly yin yoga becomes intense. I don't know how yin yoga can be intense. It's always so intense emotionally. So I had to leave the yin yoga. Now I'm doing, you know, hip hop yoga because it's more fun. But then hip hop yoga is also intense because you don't know how to twerk. And then you feel like a failure there. And then you have to find some new style. So anyhow, you can just keep going and going, going from one style to another style to another style. Some people just continually follow their doubt. This feeds, again, the delusion. And there's a particular delusion when we follow doubt about the method. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have intelligent, healthy doubt and question what's right for us and sort of maintain our sense of agency. That's absolutely true. But there is a type of what you could call delusion like that looks for a particular feeling of falling in love with, a particular feeling of fancy, a particular feeling of, wow, this is amazing like the stars in the eyes. I don't know, it, we've all been through that with the practice, I'm sure. And all of you are pretty mature in your relationship with the practice, but there, I'm sure you recognize looking back at yourself, that honeymoon period where yoga was just, wow. And you had the stars in your eyes. And you can recognize that in other people when they're new. They, you can almost see those glittery stars in the eyes that also are, are a bit of delusion. You know, it's that, that notion that love is blind, but it's not really love in that moment. It's this delusional state of um, like enticement, this uh, intoxication is the word that I was looking for, where we get intoxicated with the state for a moment. And when we switch one style to another, we change one teacher to another, we keep looking. What we're looking for is a, the next hit the next intoxication, the next thing I'm going to fall in love with, the next place I'm going to feel, oh, wow, this is what I'm looking for. And this feeding of the notion of, you know, delusion, this feeding of the notion and the need to always be intoxicated with something, you know, whether that's a new style of yoga, whether that's a new teacher, a new experience of some type, it's the, the addiction to newness is what the notion of, um, you know, attachment, delusional attachment, we could call that, okay? 
So this is what often comes up when we start to, you know, we doubt the method. Then there's like a larger type of doubt that often comes up in practice. And this larger type of doubt, we've doubted ourselves, we've doubted our bodies, we doubt the method, the methodology of yoga. Then we can have what is kind of like a big picture doubt, which can take form in, in, in small ways as well. Sometimes it's a, you know, we, we doubt authority. And again, a healthy, a healthy questioning of authority is something I will always encourage. But what I mean by saying authority is we, adapt, we end up doubting kind of the intelligence of the universe. It's like a big picture doubt. And it's an, it's an engagement in, the, in what's called all or nothing thinking, where we, where we end up setting up pass or fail tests for ourselves, for the spiritual path that ultimately lead us down a trail of nihilism. And so what something like that looks like is, well, if... I've been practicing for 20 years and I'm not enlightened by now, then all of this yoga business is just a lie and I better go back to eating hamburgers. So it's this all or nothing thing where we doubt the intelligence in the bigger picture and we end up throwing everything away because of it. And this is something that many of us engage in, in, in small and big forms. And we do this not only, of course, this is a pattern that pe- appears not only in yoga, but appears also in life. So we have these three, three forms of doubt when we enter this larger picture, big picture doubt, unfortunately, this can fuel really destructive negative mental states. Some of you may be familiar with thoughts like that that can lead you into spirals of depression, spirals of um, you know, self-hate and self-loathing, and spirals of complete hopelessness, where we feel like there's, really, there's, there's no hope left, nothing makes sense, let's throw it all away. Unfortunately, that big picture doubt is, is very real and very palpable. And they're all very connected to each other and very, very present within the realm of yoga. So doubt is what Patanjali call, is, calls one of the obstacles. And the obstacles, when these appear, are evidence that yoga is working. So this is something very interesting about the way that yoga works, that when you face an obstacle, it becomes bigger and it becomes very much in your face and it seems to take over everything. You see it not only in your practice, but you see it in your life. It impacts the quality of your thoughts. It impacts your mood off the mat and you start to just see it as a mirror image everywhere you look. If you don't have your yoga practice as a firm foundation in that moment, what will often happen is it will be so overwhelming so that you'll run away. And what, we're ending, what we end up running away from is the exact work that we need to sit through. One of the first lessons that I learned about facing doubt and facing obstacles, one of the first lessons that I learned about that was that it's exactly at the moment that you want to quit, exactly at the moment that you want to give up. That moment when you feel like you want to scream because you're so frustrated and you feel like, I'm never going to get there. This injury is never going to heal. This practice is too demanding. I can't believe I'm injured again. I want to throw everything out exactly in that moment. You want to give up. You want to give up. It's exactly in that moment where you have the biggest potential to transform yourself because it's the rawness of the emotion in that moment. The rawness and the power of the emotion in that moment has been previously fueling a cycle of ego. And when it arises through the vehicle of your yoga practice, you now have access to that power, which is nothing more than your life energy, nothing more than the truth of who you are, you could say. And then you can finally untie that knot, all that wasted energy that's just been cycling in that delusional spiral of ego. 
delusional spiral of obstacle, we can break that and then free up that life energy somehow, right? So what do we do when we face out an obstacle? We have to stay the course. We have to stay the course. We have to find a way that it works for us and our bodies to stay the course. Does that mean that if you feel really tired and you feel like, oh, my body is injured and, you know, aging like a cheese, you know, for Tim, that would be very true. He eats so much cheese. I think that if he's, you know, <laughs> he could be growing a cheese in his stomach. I don't know. So anyhow, if we feel like, oh, my body is aging and I feel, or my body is injured, tired, the body goes through cycles, you know, you get a new asana very often, there are new muscles that suddenly become fatigued. If we're asked to do something that's a little bit different than our daily practice routine, then our different muscles get sore. And then if we come to the mat and we feel, oh, I feel like I can't do anything today. You know, how do we push through doubt while at the same time honoring what comes up for our bodies and honoring our own agency? This is a difficult space to walk in. And it really illustrates the idea that this is your practice, that you have to find a way to have the faith enough to show back up on the mat through the ups and downs and figure out what that means to you. Figure out what it means. How can I practice if my shoulder hurts? How can I practice if I have a hamstring injury? And what is practice then? If it's not going to be rooted in, you know, improving the physical body, what is my practice going to be if I have to do very, very lightly? If I have to skip jumping back or jumping through because my shoulder or my wrist is bothering me, if I need to go really, really slowly, if one day, you know, I'm just not able to engage in these difficult asanas, what is my practice going to be? And can I have the energy to get on the mat and do whatever it is I can do and accept that maybe it's meditation today, or maybe it's, uh, you know, it's just a very, very gentle practice one day and not have what so many Ashtanga practitioners have, which is the Ashtangi's guilt. You know, does everybody here know what I mean about the Ashtangi's guilt? I skipped a vinyasa. Oh, I'm a bad person. Like you want to come to the confessional, you know, say, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. What did you do? I skipped the jump back between the Marichasana D on the right side and the left side. And I only did four Navasanas today because nobody was watching me, you know, and then we feel... I'm so sorry. I'm just, I got to take penance. Tomorrow, I'm going to do an extra jump back and I'm going to do seven Navasanas just to make up for it. You know, what's Ashtangi's guilt? How can we understand that we don't need to be this, you know, judge and jury for ourselves? We don't need to pass this, you know, guilty or innocent, uh, you know, judgment that that's not, that's not the quality of the practice, that there's a different way to come in. We get on the mat, we do what we can do. Sometimes it's very vigorous and we can do a lot. Other times, it's going to be very gentle and we can do very, very little. And how is it that we can navigate that space without these overwhelming feelings of guilt, without these overwhelming feelings of doubt that can derail what is the essence of the practice? And understanding that, that those mental things that, in, that arise, that these are the essence of what, what essentially we face during the practice. So maybe you have heard of uh, the, what we call the, the, the six enemies of the heart. So would you just kind of wave your hand if you've heard about the six enemies of the heart? They're called the Arishad Vargas. And when we circle the space around the heart, the reason why they're called the six enemies of the heart is that for whatever reason, they prevent you from entering into a deeply felt heart space. And 
this is the space of metta, we could say loving kindness, but it is also the space of yoga. And if we look at what Patanjali defines as sort of the presence of, of, of a yogi, which we'll look at later, some of the qualities are kind of an open, an open cheerfulness, a happy disposition, which can only come from really living, living truthfully from the heart space. When we, when we allow the six enemies of the heart to move around the heart space, then the energy of the heart begins to be what you could call hardened. So we have a hard heart rather than an open heart. What we're trying to do in the practice is find those places where our heart has hardened and softened and opened around those spaces. And this is the notion of what these six enemies are. We've already talked about some of the six enemies, which maybe you can hear. Mada is one of the six enemies. So if you're familiar with the Sanskrit word, often translated as ego, right? But also pride, arrogance, ego. These things come in as we move into the, this concept of the heart. If we have a very strong ego and a sense of pride, we get attached to identifying with ourselves in a particular way. So for example, let's say that you are naturally strong and you can easily do a handstand then your ego, the pride, oh, look what I can do, it may become inflated. Or even more so, if you were someone who was not naturally strong, and then suddenly you can do something you couldn't do before, it's easy for the, the, the pride to rise up. And there's a little bit of a healthy pride, like I put in the work and I'm just, you know, reaping the benefits of my hard work. That's one level of healthy pride. But the unhealthy pride is what the Arishad Vargas are talking about. When we move into ego, this is ego as obstacle, ego as a hardening of the heart, ego as a sense of separation. So when we become too prideful, we lose the antidote to pride, which is humility. And humility is the idea that simultaneously allows you to recognize a high sense of self-worth, but at the same time, be humble about it. So it's not self-deprecation, but humility. And that's a, that's a hard line to walk because there's a lot of people with low self-esteem that hide under the banner of humility and wear the banner of humility actually as the prideful banner. So this is a very difficult space to walk. So we've already talked a little bit about the, how doubt and ego can feed each other. But what are the other, what's the other, one of the other six enemies that we talked about is moha. Moha is often under, translated as, you know, the, the delusory attachment or the delusion of attachment, temptation. That's when I was talking about the need to constantly find the sense of intoxication. So then we're too drunk, right, with whatever it is that we're intoxicated with to actually move into the honesty and the transparency of the heart. We seek to escape rather than to be honest and real. And so we find that the antidote for that intoxicating state is truthfulness, what we understand in the Sanskrit as satya or truthfulness. So we see through the illusion into the reality. I've learned the hard way not to trust people with the stars in their eyes, including myself. So it's very, very tempting to tap into someone who's in that intoxicating state. To, they especially if they're, you know, an enthusiastic student or a friend. And in that state, they can almost easily talk you into doing anything with them. Oh, please. This is the best thing I've ever done. You have to do it also, you know, and, and then you end up there too. Oh, okay. This is the best thing. Now we're doing it. What are we doing? You know, we don't even know. And, and then we get lost a little bit. So 
honesty, truthfulness, satya is an antidote to, to this. And when we're, when we're very, very honest, what this allows the space of the heart is vulnerability and it allows honesty and intimacy. Because in that intoxicating state of delusory attachment, there's no way we can be truly honest or intimate because we're not honest or intimate with ourselves. Our vulnerability is actually very, very low. And instead we're escaping whatever hurt, whatever woundedness might actually be there in our hearts. So then uh, let's just go through the rest of the six enemies. The first one we usually talk about is kama or desire. And there's this, you know, the classic idea that desire is a root of almost every source of suffering. And that if we could remove desire, we would have, you know, a state where we would be free from the ups and downs of everyday life. Desire defines so much of our actions and desire can create so much hardness around our hearts. What we desire can create rigidity and can create dogma. So think about the places where desire has created a sense of rigidity around the practice. You know, sometimes we fall too much into rhythms, too much into patterns of knowing exactly what comes next, knowing exactly how we should do it, and being so afraid to deviate from dogma because we desire so strongly either the approval of our teacher, the desire to fit into, you know, a community. We desire something that we're trying to get. Here's something to think about. Anytime we enter into any relationship, whether that's a relationship between you and yourself, whether it's a relationship between you and your teacher, between you and a friend, between you and a romantic partner, between you and a family member, anything like that, if there's an element of desire, if we come in with an element of desire, I want something from this person, this being, that desire is a colored lens that will influence every single interaction. If that's how you interact with your body, hey, my body, I desire this from you, that will color how you relate with your body. And it won't be honest and clear. There will always be a tint of desire. This is what we call, this is why, this is why kama or desire is considered to be one of the biggest obstacles around the heart. If we can remove desire, then we can see clearly and we can have a truly open heart. I heard a definition of love from a spiritual teacher. I can't remember who it was right now, but uh, the saying was that the definition of love is, I want for you what you want for you. And how rare is that? You know, for those of you that are in the relationship, how often do we think, oh, I want for you what you want for you? No, we are often like, oh, I love you. Can you clean your socks, please? You know? Like, you're really nice. Could you please take the dishes out also? You know, it's not always this kind of, I want for you what you want for you. Oh, that's, you know, cause, because it's scary. If that's actually really true, then at some moment that person could be led to leave you. And in that moment, it's really, really scary. It's all of the firm ground of what you can come to expect in life and in relationships starts to disintegrate. And then we think, wow, no, I desire. I desire, I want you to stay here. I want you to talk to me in this way. I I don't want for you what you want for you. I want you to stay here and love me. And then we have again, desire. Desire is the suffocation that prevents a a freely flowing two-way street, okay? So the next of the six enemies, Kuroda, anger. I think anger is a, I mean, for me, I can see how definitely anger is a very simple, easy to see, 
obstacle around the heart. I have had conversations with people that uh, don't agree with uh, that, that some people say that anger is really, really useful and can get a lot of things done in the world and that we have to be angry and activists and, you know, protest in the world and march into the streets and these sorts of things. And while I, and, and on some level, I agree that there is a force behind anger. But we're looking at this from the spiritual practitioner's perspective, which takes a really, really big view of whatever we're facing in the world and takes this really, really big picture view, always centered around what is going to lead you as the spiritual practitioner on your highest path. So there's the idea that any action taken in anger will lead to more anger. Any action rooted in anger will lead to more anger. Even if that fighting somehow leads to a net positive. The fact that you as a spiritual practitioner have engaged in anger, in some form of anger, then you have created a division between you and another being. Anger itself is the designation, I am good, you are bad. Uh, You have done something bad, I stand for goodness. So it is the necessary division between good and bad. So then when we think about this as anger, how does anger impact the heart? Anger is itself a hardening of the heart. Anybody we have designated as, you know, an evil person or someone that's worthy of our anger, as soon as we think, you are, I am angry at you, that person strangely is not in our heart space, but occupies our heart instead. So when, when we think about it, that anger sits on the heart like a heaviness and prevents the natural flow of energy in the level of the heart. There is one exception to this when we think about it, which is that if we look at emotions in the grand scheme of kind of um, like in a spectrum. So if somebody is stuck in a, a really, really dark period of depression, of negativity, which is actually unexpressed anger, sometimes in order to move out of what is a, a really dark state of negativity, a really dark state of depression, dejection, Sometimes it is necessary to express the anger that is kept inside on a lock and key. Not necessarily to act on it, but to express it and let it be there and, 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 to, and to embrace that as moving up along the emotional spectrum. So when we talk about anger as an enemy or one of the six enemies, an enemy of the heart center, what we have to understand is that the yoga's teachings, when we talk about the enemies of the heart, not saying that you can never have a feeling of anger but that when you allow that feeling of anger to be a driver, a motivator, and you allow that feeling of anger to take permanent residence in your heart, that it creates a hardening. It creates an obstacle to the state of yoga. Okay? If there are questions about that, we can talk about it later. But I want to go over just the last of the six enemies, matsardia, which is envy or jealousy. And I find this one to be extremely interesting because jealousy and envy, every one of us has experienced at some moments, you know, unfortunately to say, we've all experienced that, you know, whether it's the simple gazing at a t-shirt somebody had, oh, I love that shirt. Oh, I want it. Oh, where did you get it? Oh, how much is it? Oh, I'm never going to be able to afford that shirt, you know? Oh, it's a really expensive one that you got in some foreign country I'm never going to visit. Oh, I want it. You know, or if you look at somebody who has, is doing a yoga pose that you really, really want to do, you look at it with such longing and envy. Oh, look at this person. They do such easy backbends. I want to do backbends like that. And we envy this person, you know? Oh, and then we have this feeling of desire. I want what they have. 
there is, again, this ego identification with the wanting, the desire of that which you think you don't have. The only reason we want something else like that is because we think when we get it, we're going to feel better. We think when I do a backbend, I'm going to feel like I'm a happier person. Again, it's another delusion that we engage in. However, jealousy works in the opposite way than we think it does. When we look at somebody else and give them our energy and desire what they have, we actually give them energy. So we're taking energy away from ourselves and we spend time thinking about them, being jealous about them, tearing them down. We're using our energy to build that person up. It works in the exact opposite way. The only way we can break free of jealousy is by singing the praises of those individuals who have achieved what we want to achieve or who have what we want to have by actually flipping it completely around and engaging in a cheerful disposition towards those who have exactly what we don't. Because then there are two things that happen. Number one, we break the chain of jealousy, which is extremely important. But number two, by doing that, we get a little bit of the joy the celebration that that being got in their success. So we can actually achieve the goal of feeling better without actually putting in all of the work that that other being did to attain the result. So we can share in the fruits without actually engaging in the labor, which is actually pretty cool. It's the exact opposite of what jealousy thinks is happening. Okay. These are the six enemies. Then the last thing I want to share with you before we start taking some questions and opening up for a more open discussion is uh, Yoga Sutra number 241. And Yoga Sutra number 241 is what we can think about as the yogi's mind. And here are some qualities of the yogi's mind, which I want you to juxtapose in your mind as kind of the antidotes to the six enemies, right? So we have the idea that the yogi's mind has, is flowing in the state of sattva, And the state of sattva is a state of harmony and peace. And then in the state of harmony and peace, the idea is, of course, this is a heart-centered space where the heart is open and that state of loving kindness is present. When everything is in harmony, then there is no division between you and me, between good and bad, between you know, those, th- those things which, which uh, we desire versus what, those things which we have now, all of those illusions of the ego are sort of melted away. Then we have shuddhi, which is the idea that all of those, every obstacle has been purified. So sattva shuddhi. When the obstacles have been purified, then there are no more enemies around the heart. There's no more hardness around the heart. There's a constant state of openness. The next word, which I like a lot, salmanasya. Salmanasya is a cheerful disposition, a cheerfulness, a happiness. And I like this because it's, a, it's an antidote also to what Patanjali talks about as the experience of the obstacles. Patanjali says when you experience obstacles, also like the six enemies of the heart, we experience or we enter into a state called dharmanasya, which is dejection, depression, we feel lost, hopeless, doubtful. Salmanasya, the opposite of that, we have a cheerful disposition. How can we feel a cheerful disposition? Only when all of the obstacles are removed, then the natural state of cheerfulness arises. Hmm? Um, now, the next aspect of this sutra is the ekagriya or the ekatattva state, which means that the mind is able to be focused and steady. A focused, steady mind is an important aspect of the yogi's journey. 
So, so much of what we're working on, the discipline of the practice, coming into the practice six days a week, getting on the mat when we don't want to, staying the course in the face of doubt, we're working on the discipline to keep the mind one-pointed and singular. Hmm? Now, the, the sutra continues, the indriya jaya, or jaya indriya, whichever way we want to face that. So, indriya is the senses, jaya is control. So what we're looking at now is that the objects of the senses under the untrained yogic, the untrained mind will focus externally. We look it out into the external world, it generates desire. We have interaction with the fields of senses and it fuels the six enemies. We increase pride, we increase jealousy. This happens so often, you know, with our gaze, we're looking at other people and desiring what they have. We're take, you know, engaging in all sorts of activities that are building up our ego, all because we interacted with something in the external world through the organs of the senses. Jaya Indriya means the yogi has control over the senses and is able to redirect the objects of the senses into the inner world. So that instead of focusing outward, that the yogi is able to focus inward. What happens when the yogi focuses inward? Then we have Atma Darshana. Atma is the true self. Darshan is seeing or revealing in light. So now we understand that we want to juxtapose this state towards the state of the six enemies. Which state do you want to be in? Do you want to be in a state that's prideful, desiring, delusional, filled with ego, you know, filled with anger, filled with lusts, intoxicated by the next uh, little escape that we experience? Or... Do you want to work for a truly stable, cheerful disposition that allows you to be in harmony with yourself and in harmony with other beings, allows you to really feel the true power of the senses by directing that into the inner world to recognize and realize what is the highest self or the true self. And then, you know, be able to, as we, as the sutra finds or says at the end, yogyatvanicha, have this this, uh, stable yogi's mind. That's what we're working for. So I wanted to share that with you because I felt like there are many of us who faced a lot of doubts this week and a lot of obstacles this week. A lot of difficulty has arisen, whether physical, emotional, or, or, or in other forms. So I, 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 I wanted to share that with you so that you could understand that you're all doing the work of yoga, particularly in those moments of difficulty, particularly in those moments of doubts. Good. So that was pretty much all I wanted to say to everyone today. And now we have some time for some questions. So if you have a question, now perhaps we can talk about it a little. So if you want to maybe wave your hands and then we can unmute one or the other. Fenia, you got a question? Okay, let's unmute you. I'm trying to unmute you. I cannot. Good. Now I can hear you. Okay. Sorry. I don't know why I'm always the first one. I'm always burning to ask questions. That's good. Okay. Um, so just before entering this wonderful space and a kind of discussion that I feel nurtures my uh, sense of positive disposition, I was in a one-hour discussion of theorizing COVID for the place. Oh. And so there were presentations. The first one started right off the bat uh, talking about Viktor Frankl's book, uh, <laughs> Search for Life, right? And so uh, for meaning, sorry. And so what they were trying to say was that choosing your attitude towards whatever it is that you are experiencing is inner freedom, Mm -hmm. right? And so um, I had to leave. Uh, I didn't listen to all the presentations. 
the promise to be an hour and no way they're probably still going on. And a lot of it is really negative. I mean, they're framing it as trauma, trauma, trauma. How do we deal with all this negativity? You know, all these people are dying and the governments are lying about it. And there aren't enough resources. It's just like, it's not a space you want to be in. Every single presenter admitted that they're guilty of reading too much news uh, and becoming paranoid. And just like freaking themselves out and definitely not uh, having any kind of stable, calm, yogic um, presence. So just before I left, I was like, we should have a yoga session or something and talk about, you know, tools that may be useful. But my question about um, the moment of tapping into that raw energy that you're talking about when you hit a wall and you want to give up. Mm-hmm. Um, I just wonder if you have an example either on the yoga mat or in life where, you know, you, you can like kind of map the way you, you um, understood the space between the stimuli that caused you such distress and your response, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. you know, space of freedom, right? When you get to choose to continue and not give up on those jump backs. Um, <laughs> my arms are like noodles after this week because you know I'm not cheating anymore. I'm just yeah. So um, yeah, like any any thoughts, any sort of anecdotes that you could share about uh, the way that you diagnose or sort of um, micro inspect uh, uh, those moments and how uh, perhaps you can explain that to people who are really not used to uh the, the like the people who run to yin yoga to whatever else they're like this is not for me screw it and, and that's it right because mm-hmm. I, I i stick with the work but the negative inner talk is just uh you know something that continues on and on and so it'll never go away but when i hit roadblocks there are moments when i have little meltdowns not in yoga and like life and academic life where i'm like okay that's it i'm just gonna leave it all behind screw this phd and whatever right <laughs> Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Okay, so so thanks, Ken, thanks, Kenya. That was a the, there's a lot there. So first, uh, I want to talk a little bit about the Viktor Frankl. For those of you who are not familiar with Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning is a wonderful book. Um, there are many he has many wonderful insights and teachings in the Man's Search for Meaning and in Viktor Frankl's books. If you haven't read this, it's a short little book and it has a wonderful amount of information. The uh, amazing thing with Viktor Frankl is he's a, he was a Holocaust survivor who made an amazing discovery amidst one of the most, uh, you know, devastating and traumatic experiences that a human being could ever endure. And the first thing that he, you know, uh, is credited with now is finding out this notion of the true place of a human being's points of freedom. So what he's noticed is, and he observed that there was a stimulus, something that is you experience through the organs of our senses, and this stimulus arrives to us from the external world, or anything that's outside of the realm of the true self is a stimulus that comes in, then there's a response. That response is often automated and subconscious and happens before we're aware of it. We don't even realize there's a stimulus, and already we're responding. The power of the response has an inertia behind every other time that we've responded in that exact same way. So that the more we respond in the same way to the same stimuli, then we continue the cycle over and over again. 
And what his great discovery was, was that there's a space between stimulus and response. And in that space, we could call it a pause, but in that space, we have the ability and the freedom to choose how we respond to the stimulus rather than be dictated by the inertia of all of our past behavioral patterning, all of our expectations, all of our notions of how things should or shouldn't be. So when we understand that, it's an amazing discovery. If Viktor Frankl is able to maintain some sort of an open mind and a peaceful disposition during his you know, experience in the Holocaust and was able to make this amazing discovery that he was able to find freedom even though he was in you know, immense chains, then we can apply that same teaching for us. So what is the stimulus and what is the response? So one thing to notice is that all of the time we are responding to various stimuli. We don't realize it. So for example, throughout the course of this talk, almost every single one of you has changed position numerous times. No judgment, right? But we didn't have consciousness about that. We are responding on automatic to a stimulus that's arriving through the field of the body. We don't sit there and think, now my toes are in an uncomfortable position. I would like to move my left toe slightly to find a better place of comfort. Let me now move my left toe. No, we don't do this. Also, itching is a great example of this. I have to do this numerous times. We don't feel an itch and then think, now an itch has arisen on my face. We don't think that. Already we're itching. We're itching, itching, itching. Somebody says, oh, you're itching. You don't even realize you're itching. Oh, I'm itching. I have an itch. Really? Where? You know, oh, itching, itching, itching. We don't even know. Automatically, we're just doing, going, reacting, going back and forth. So first of all, we are not free. We think, particularly in the United States, we love freedom. We protest freedom. I want to be free, free, free. What are we free? We are dictated by our past reacting. There's no space between the stimulus and response. We're just reacting, reacting, reacting. We're an accumulation of reactions, thinking that we're free. Even the idea of thinking that we're free, this is something that we've generated to some stimulus that we've had in the past, some programming we received from our school, our family, our culture, something like that. So how can we get this stimulus between this, this space between stimulus and response? Yoga is very much working in that. Our, the response, we call in yoga the samskaras, the behavioral patterns that are there. What is the stimulus? The stimulus is through the indriyas. Anything that we come into contact with through the organs of the five senses is considered to be a stimulus. Then how do we insert the, the space? Well, this is where we have the whole methodology of yoga is about inserting the space. It is the space. Not only does yoga say you can find freedom in the space, yoga says you, that, that you are the space that you're not your response and you're not the stimulus, that you in fact are the space between stimulus and response. So of course there's freedom there because the only way we can attain freedom, kaivalya, liberation, to truly be free is to recognize the self. So now the whole methodology of yoga, how can we insert space between there? First, breathing, you know, very simple. So we have the tool, we breathe, take some breaths. Number two, we redirect the organs of the senses into the inner world. So this is the, you know, the mental power, the mental control that we engage in. There are, you know, there are numerous other things that we, that we try to do in yoga that encourage the mind to stop. Sometimes it's said that, I can't remember which scripture that says this, but it's one of, something about the idea that when the body is stretched to its absolute limit, the mind stops for a moment. 
so that actually we're not respond, we're not reacting in that moment. The moment after we start reacting, oh, it was good, it was bad, I liked it, I didn't like it, that sort of thing starts happening. So what do we do when it seems that the stimulus of practice is generating a negative response? We're trying to jump back, and instead of jumping back, we're frustrated. So now in our practice, some, there's a negative stimulus. No, practice is not a negative stimulus. Practice is an opportunity for you to repattern how you respond to any stimulus that brings frustration. Practice is a chance for you to look at yourself. Oh, this is what I do when I'm fearful. This is what I do when I think I'm insecure. This is how I be when I feel I'm going to lose everything. This is how I am when I'm pushed. And if, if you don't put in that work in the fields of practice, then you go out into life and life has this powerful inertia, then you're just pulled into recreating the habit patterns of the past. So then we never realize, oh, when I'm fearful, I grasp. And what do I grasp towards? Oh, I grasp towards the known. I want to go back retro, retroactively to some familiar thing. It's just an example. You could react in a different way to fear. Some people have a different reaction to fear. They feel fear and then they push forward like crazy, you know? Uh, one's not better than the other. It's just about knowing, oh, when I feel fear, this is my pattern. Oh, interesting. When I feel frustration, this is my pattern. So then when you move into your life, you can experience the same thing. And then hopefully insert the same pause to press pause for just long enough to, 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 to be able to choose, oh, here's the fear, whatever that is. Maybe we have a job loss we're facing that can immediately bring up a lot of fear. Oh, now whatever I was doing before, my livelihood, it's not there anymore. So we've lost the source of income, a sense of security. Then we've lost the sense of identity. I used to be this person who engaged in these activities. Now I'm not that person. I don't engage in those activities anymore. A low feeling of self-worth because we feel we're not getting you know, the validation from the paycheck that we normally counted on. So all of these things are gone. So then this is stimulus. What is the response? If we don't have the yoga practice, it's so easy to be pulled into a spiral, some spiritual practice, pulled into a spiral of reaction, reaction, reaction. What do you do? I, you know, panic and freak out. I push harder. I, you know, grasp onto things related to the past and whatever it is. In, In the yoga practice, we experience a microcosm of these life circumstances. So then we recognize, oh, when I feel fear, this is what I normally do. Okay. I can feel the pull towards all of this reaction. Let me just press pause for a moment. I really, really want to do that. I really feel it. It's that it's, you know, I really feel it. That's what I want to do. But let me just pause, take 10 breaths, squeeze my pelvic floor and try to breathe in and out. And then just 10 breaths is enough to slow the, the reaction chain down. And then ask, you know, and ask a question, how is it I would like to respond to this? You know, can I just sit with this instead of reacting? And then can you expand the space between stimulus and response? And this is a really powerful technique to engage in. Now, you may need to, during these times in particular, you may need to engage in extra discipline when it comes to inserting space between the stimulus of the external world and the response. So some things, particularly during these times, that can be extremely useful if you're not doing them is to have, are to have hours in the day where you are totally offline. Where, and what this means is that your devices are all in airplane mode and it, if it, it can be for as little as 20 minutes or more than an hour. If that can be first thing in the morning and last thing at night, this is so very, very good for your mental health to not have notifications coming in 
first thing in the morning and last thing at night, even if it's just five, 20 min- five to 20 minutes before bed, five to 20 minutes upon waking up, this will do wonders for your mental health. If it can be longer, if you can pause your notifications for an hour you know, before bed or an hour after you wake up, this gives your mind a chance to experience life without any heavy interference from the really difficult circumstances that our world is facing right now. Not that we shouldn't pay attention and care and do what we can to make a difference in the world, but that just for our own mental health, pressing pause on the stimulus gives us a chance to return to ourselves and take in what is what are the very simple pleasures which are still available in all of our lives. The simple pleasure of opening a window, looking you know, at the sky out of the window, even if you can only see a glimmer of the sky, it's still there. Breathing in the fresh air, looking you know, at a flower, appreciating that there's food in your refrigerator, you know, a- anything like that, 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 that honestly, when we don't have uh, notifications coming in, we'd sit there for a little bit. And then if we're, if we're home with friends and family, if the notifications aren't coming in, then maybe we talk to them. Hi, you know, how are you doing? Normally I would be staring at my phone, but right now I'll talk to you. Right. This is maybe they don't like it. They're staring at their phone. Don't leave me alone. I'm staring at my phone. So then maybe as a family, we can engage in, you know, 20 minutes of notification, internet free hours. And I think during these times, a little mini fast can be extremely useful when it comes to engaging with the external world. Second, if we're going to engage somehow with the world, this is a, you know, a space where we have to constantly be practicing. We have to constantly be engaged in the activity of noticing our breath, noticing our body, and noticing the state of our mind. Because it's too easy to get hooked and just start the whole train of everything that we've known and everything that we've been and jump on the bandwagons of the past. It's too easy to pick up all of those tools that are familiar with the constructed life that we know inside of our mind and just charge right ahead. It feels too good because it's too known. It's too familiar. It's too old. It's too easy to go there. So if we're not constantly engaging in the activity of practice, particularly in these times when we're in, if we choose to engage with the, with the world situation, then it's a, it's a very, very big temptation to regress and to go back and lose some ground gained. But it's not a problem if you do. What is the practice? It's always there for you. Then you come back and you just start again. You just start again. You just start again. And then you get more humility along the way. Oh, I've, you know, I lost a lot. Oh, I look, I'm doing this pattern. I thought I was through with this. And now it's come back. Oh, wonderful. Now I can watch it leave again. You know, more compassion, more compassion. Okay. Lisa, you've had your hand up. So let's unmute you and let's see. You've got a question. I'm going to unmute you. Okay. So I was saying that um, these systems were given to us through the lens of the, of the masculine and all of the, the old Guruji's, most of them have died away. And um, is it time for these systems to evolve, to be expressed through the lens of the feminine and have a, uh, um, uh, an understanding of and um, embracing of like the softness of the root chakra and the sacral chakra, meaning, you know, the, the Ashtanga practice is very hard and requires so much strength, but is that necessarily good for, for us in the long run? Well, it's a good question. 
So, Lisa, thanks so much for asking that. Uh, let's start off with what the Krishnamacharya said. He said the, that in the beginning, he was hesitant to teach women the, the traditional teachings because that wasn't the, what he'd known in the past. But then at the end of his life, he said that the women are the future of yoga and that if we don't teach women yoga, then yoga is going to die off. Uh, and I think this is true. I mean, look at the class that we have here. There are not so many men in the class. And if you go to any yoga class in any country in the world, the majority of the students are women, you know, and this says something. So I don't think we need to make like a big protest and a big revolution and like go on the streets and like, you know, make up, like put more women in yoga. I'm like, all the women are in yoga. You know, we don't need more women. We're not protesting. Let's yoga for women. Now we try to make promotion yoga for men because the men don't think they can do yoga. Now the attitude, most people think that yoga is for women. You know, this is interesting. Like maybe for 2000 years, yoga was done in India, mostly by men. You know, even there were female lineages and female practitioners, but the, you know, the traditional practice was in lineage holders. As you mentioned, the gurus of times past were almost all men. The lineage holders are almost all men, you know, and, and, but it's the opposite now when we think about the popular convention of what yoga is. You ask people who have never tried yoga, ask any guy on the streets of the United States of America who's never tried yoga hey, are you interested in yoga? And they'd be like, yoga? Yoga's for girls, you know? And then, well, why don't you try? Ah, you know, I want to do push-ups and try to build, you know, strength. And they're like, well, you know, we do that in yoga, really. So I, I remember uh, one, of our one, of, one of our students once in a retreat, he was uh, an electrician and was kind of like a real, like a, like a guy's guy. And, you know, just, I don't know any other way to explain that. Just, you know, and then, and, and he was like, yeah, you know, I, first I was embarrassed that I was doing yoga, you know, because yoga is like for girls, you know, and I'm not, I'm not a girl. And he went into a whole thing about it. and was like, it's okay that you, it's okay with me that you do yoga. You know, I'm, I don't think your masculinity is threatened by the fact that you do yoga. I'm obviously, you know, married to a yoga guy. I'm good, you know? And he was like, oh, but what do I tell all my friends? I'm like, I, I don't know. And he's like, ah. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell them that I do a lot of push-ups. <laughs> like, okay, <laughs> whatever makes you happy. It's like, yeah, when they, when they say what, what, what yoga is, I'm going to say it's a lot of push-ups. It's a lot of this thing called chaturanga. And then, then they're going to think I'm cool. It's like, whatever you need to do, just keep coming to practice, but you have to do backbends, okay? And so the reason why, why I, I, I say that is I feel like it's happening I feel like we don't actually need to do anything other than keep teaching, keep practicing. So how can we shift the balance of power in, you know, in, in the power dynamic in the yoga world? Well, it's up to the students, I feel, to choose teachers that embrace a new paradigm and a new methodology. When we continue to embrace teachers, we as students continue to embrace teachers that don't uh, 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 uphold the values of a new paradigm and a new methodology, then we entrench the past. At the same time, we don't necessarily want to just say everything in the past is bad, burn it down. Because then we end up within a situation where we become ruthless and groundless. So there's a happy medium where we can respect the lineage that was in the past and at the same time have a gaze, uh, you know, a, a humble gaze forward to the future. And I think that the, the experience of yoga itself 
is an experience of balance. You know, this state of sattva is a state of harmony. Yoga says that we're aiming to achieve the balance between opposing forces. Tato dvandvana vigata. So what is dvandvana? The opposing forces. Sometimes easily and more casually understood as pleasure and pain, but also opposing forces, masculine and feminine. Not necessarily gender, right? Not biological gender in that way, but the masculine energy, a forceful energy, or a feminine energy, a soft energy. Again, not necessarily rooted in that biological determinism, but the idea of you know, being able to find this balance in the mind within yourself. So there's also this idea that when we unite the opposing forces of prana and apana, so we have prana and apana, you know, the upward flowing energy and the downward flowing energy, when we ourselves maintain the dvandvana, this balance of these opposing forces, then that is the moment when our energy transcends gender, when our energy is transcendent of, you know, masculine, feminine, I'm male, I'm female, and this, I'm that. And, and instead we enter, uh, the energy enters what the, in the esoteric sort of anatomy of the body is called the shashumna nadi. When our energy enters the shashumna nadi, then we're in the process of ascension and awakening. So it's not about anymore, you know, do I need, do I need to balance this with that? Because that's the analytical mind. Do I need to do this or that? It's this or that, this or that, one or the other, you know? When we enter into that space of true harmony, when we're unite, when we ourselves are the unification of opposites, then there's a different expression entirely. That's what we work towards. You know, that's what we work towards. Yeah. Super. Hi, David. Let's unmute you. Okay. Hello. Um, I had kind of two questions, but they're similar, probably okay. more applicable to beginners. Okay. But um, rest days that we say, we talk about like practicing every day, uh-huh. but obviously like by the time, like Sunday is my rest day, I just feel like I've been bulldozed and like my physical body absolutely needs to stop moving. But um, the flip side of that is I always get so bummed out that I didn't do a practice. <laughs> And like, it really actually sets the tone poorly for the day. Like, so it's like, you know, my body needed the rest, but my mind um, actually really needed practice of some kind. And I don't know how to like weigh the two. And I also find that it like affects my ability to start again the next, like in the next week cycle. Hmm. Um, Like the next day, I feel more likely, like I I never quit on, on Friday like after I've practiced for four days. But Monday is when I'm more likely to, to, to not practice. Yeah. So I, I just kind of want to know your thoughts on how people... And then my second question, just maybe as an addendum, is like stretching. Um, I feel like my muscle soreness is mostly because stretching. And yet, and I want to like improve that, but I also feel like it's... Um, I, I can't tell if doing more is harmful and if my body needs, I don't, I don't know. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, thanks for asking, David. I, I, I think that there isn't anyone who doesn't experience what you do right there. That when we get this intense practice, that what, by the time the five, six days is done, that we're like, I can't even think about, like, uh, you know, I remember particularly times in, in being in Mysore and being in India and giving like all my heart and soul to the practice. And then on the rest day, some people would go through these things where they were like, do you want to go hike Chamundi Hill? And you want to do this and do that? And I was like, uh, no, I'm good. I want to lie flat for the entire day and stare at a wall and have food delivery. You know, like, no, I don't, I barely want to walk around the apartment. Could you carry me to the bathroom as a matter of fact? 
And, you know, and I still feel like that after a week of practice. I've tried a couple of times to have a situation where I couldn't have a day off. And the day off was either I couldn't have a day off physically. And sometimes this was because I was like, okay, I'm, this is my Ashtanga practice. And then I had to teach. And then the teaching meant that I started to do something physical. So I didn't have the day off. Then I had to practice again. And then the practice again was happening, happening, happening. And I just didn't have a day off. So then it became just really, really intense. And my body was not able to regenerate. And at some moment, what I noticed is that if I didn't take the day off, my body took a day off. So if I had a day, oh, I would film. And so then I, I, when I ended up doing all of this movement for filming and that was supposed to be my rest day. Then I tried to get back on my Ashtanga mat. I would get back on the mat, maybe not that day, but like two days later, my body would not be able to do anything. I would get on the mat and I would try to move. It would just be so, like, ah, what's wrong? Do I have the flu? Am I sick? And then I realized, oh, my body, is, my body is taking a rest day. Whether or not I am taking a rest day, body is taking a rest day. So then I started to really respect these rest days. Now what's going on in the rest day, I really, this can help you like with the, almost get into a practice of a rest day. It's a type of practice. Number one, we, we're practicing letting go of our attachment to practice. So we're actually practicing once a week. I let this thing I love go. Even though I love it and I want to do it, I'm actively practicing my attachment. So, we, so it's a form of practice, number one. Number two, we can reframe it and saying, I'm actually giving my body the downtime it needs to regenerate. And so this is like a nourishing time where here we are and, okay, my body's going to regenerate. I'm, I'm giving myself like this, I'm, into, I'm in a spa, you know, I'm in a regenerative time. My, my little, my joints and my, on a cellular level are regenerating. So I feel like, you know, there is this tendency on the rest day. I know Sharat said like two weeks ago, it's like, oh, before the rest day, eat a giant pizza. And I'm like, I totally like if you have a craving for pizza, it's a good time to have a pizza. But I'm also like, you know, it's also the time I think that the body's recuperating. So I feel like actually to take the time to make sure that you get in really, really good nourishment, either on the rest day or the day before the rest day to make sure that you're eating as healthfully and having as balanced a nutritional profile, particularly been working really, really hard to give your muscles things that your body is going to use to rebuild your muscles on a cellular level. And then really take that in and really feel like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm bringing good things into my body now. Extra water, extra, particularly if you're, you know, working the practice at things with a lot of vitamins and minerals that are going to help the, the muscles rebuild things with high quality, you know, um, uh, high quality plant-based protein, whether it's spirulina or something else, bringing, bringing things into the body that can really assist the regeneration process is super important. So respecting that is allowing your body to recuperate and will also give time for the injuries in the body to heal. If we only push, 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 particularly at the level of muscles or attachments, then, then the muscles don't get that chance to rebuild. So we're giving ourselves a uh, you know, chance to, to regenerate those micro tears, which, is what create, which are what create soreness. However, flexibility soreness and strength soreness are biologically different in what happens in the body. Strength soreness, the micro tears that happen is because the muscle was pushed to a point and there's almost like a mini burst. Then we get a sore, but the sore is like a firecracker sore. Like we get like a fiery sore, you know, like we can feel almost like, and, and with the strength soreness, you're, you're tired, but there's this feeling of up in the body. Like you're a little bit pumped from the strength soreness. Your arms are sore because you did a lot of planks or, you know, did handstand or something like that. There's this feeling of like, 
yeah, there's like, I don't know, an energy that's up there. Flexibility soreness, what happens is the muscle fiber is built and then it gets pulled. And then there's a micro tear that pulls this way. Now that feels different. That does not feel like an up. Then you end up feeling down. You feel like, can I move? You wonder if you're having the flu. You know, we have these aches and pains, like, ooh. And now we're all paranoid in these, these days. Every time we, have some, we sneeze and we're like, ooh, should I go get tested? Who have I been talking to lately? You know, then we feel a small ache in our, you know, in our muscles and we're like, hmm, oh my God, I better pump up the echinacea. And, you know, we go into these spins about that, but that's totally normal. The, the, the soreness that we feel from stretching feels kind of like the flu and, we, and it's an emotional feeling as well. If we don't take that rest day, then the body can't process that. It can't move through that. Again, rest day is super important. And it's super important not to overexert yourself in other activities on the rest day. Not that you cannot go for a walk or you know, a ride on the bicycle or something that's pleasurable for you, but to engage in overexertion on the rest day prevents the body from recuperating. Second, sorry, third level of attachment that we're working on is our ego's need to prove itself worthy, right? So when we do something every day, that says, I am good. Then it's like, we check off a box of good personhood. We're like, I did practice today. So at least I did that. Like, yay, I'm good. We don't have that. We're like, but wait, I'm not good because I didn't do something. So then it's like, we, we get into this, this like little spin. And then we sit there and we're like, but I didn't do it and I should do it. And then, but so I'm not like, I'm nothing because I didn't do my practice. And then, and then we, don't, we don't have that little check. So work with that. However, it's not to say that we can't engage in spiritual practice every day. What I definitely recommend if there are disturbing mental thought forms that come up, particularly on the day of rest, that's a time to do a meditation practice. And that's a time to do a longer sit. If we have time, do a longer sit and work with the minds. And that, you know, at some moments, I don't know when, but some moment we, we also, we can shift into such a, a level of like a meditative state where we don't need a meditation practice to work with the mind. You know, I'm not there yet, but there are, you know, people that have put in over a hundred thousand hours of sitting and have had had their brain scanned and show that their resting brainwave state is at a higher vibration and frequency than any average human ever has been documented to achieve in even the most mystical and transcendental meditative states. So once you get to that stage, then you don't even need to meditate. There are no days off. You just exist in samadhi. But the rest of us, we need to constantly train the mind. So on the days when you're giving the body physical rest, the spiritual practice can continue. And then if there are those disturbing mental thought forms, oh, ego is trying to check off some box of good personhood. So you use meditation not to check off that box, but to watch. Oh, here it is again. Ah, this is what my ego does when I don't have something to do. Interesting. And you sit with that. You watch it. It changes. Uh, the, other, the last thing that is the, the antidote to not knowing what to do on the rest day and like not having the rhythm of the rest day is uh, just longevity of practice. 10, 20 years into the practice, you're like, excuse me, when is the moon day? Is there a double moon? Uh, I heard something about a super moon. Maybe I should take two days off so that I can welcome the moon in and see the moon out, you know? 
the first time I, I, I got that there, that there was something like you could, like, basically you're also allowed to take days off that aren't moon days. Like it's also okay. But there was one time I was in, I was in Mysore. I was practicing intensive practice. It was one of my trips there for six months. And it was, you know, it was an, it was an intense period. I think it was also one of these times when there hadn't been a moon day on a rest day in a long time. Occasionally it's like this. We have, you know, we have a, so if your Sunday is a rest day, then if moon days fall on Sunday for a long time, then it's kind of like, huh, only have six day a week practices. And then suddenly there was a moon day and then suddenly it became a double moon day, you know? And, and it was, let's just put, they put a sign that just said special black moon, two days off. And it was like, huh, never heard of that before. And then we came into practice and there were, there was like evidence that there'd been a big birthday party the night before. And I was like, okay, I understand. There was a moon day and there was a family event. I got it. Okay. You know, and it just softened the edges. So I think, you know, you can soften the edges. Some people freak out about travel and practice, you know, practice with travel. You know, uh, there's a, you know, what do we do when we travel and I'm going to miss a day here and miss, it's okay. Like, it's okay. Now, one thing that will keep you back to the mat, keep you coming back to the mat is again, the, the, the routine and the regularity of establishing, okay, I'm, I'm going to get back to the mat. If you ever take more than a day off, then the pull to come back to practice will, will, you know, just, you'll start to crave it. It'll be like, okay, I've got, I've got to get back on the mat. If not, then perhaps the people that live with you or that you see in your life will notice that you haven't been practicing because you'll be a different person and they will unroll your mat for you and place you on the mat. <laughs> you haven't been practicing in a while. Let's make space for your yoga. <laughs> you know, and this is also evidence that yoga is working. Oh, I see that it's reflected in the mirror of my life. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Good. So if you have a question, just go like this, then we can have a, a mood. If not, Xenia will ask lots of questions for the rest of the time. Okay, Xenia, you get one more question. Everyone shy today. I'm so sorry. I, uh, yeah, I have a lot of questions. I didn't get a chance to ask Tim when I was training with him because a number of other students were talking about fasting uh, as another kind of cleansing practice. Uh, do you sort of subscribe to any kind of uh, methodology around, like, you know, I mean, in Toronto here, yogis, they do intermittent fasting. They're like, oh, yeah. You know, and they also joke about how it's more towards like vanity and looking really, really great on the mats rather than like, but I find as a preemie, like my digestive system is so slow that I like, I don't know, I find that um, if I have the discipline to fast, maybe it's good for me with kids and husband. It's so hard not to eat um, in the evenings, especially because they are hungry and then I'm cooking. I can't, you know, and so like, do, do you have any advice for fasting? Do you do like one day no food sometimes? Some do, people do five days just water, which is weird doing. Yeah, so I don't know, something like that. Yeah, no, that's a good question. So one of the things that comes up when we start practicing is that we begin to become intimate with the body. And then we start to feel, oh, here are the ways that my body needs cleansing. So we need to clean the body, take shower before practice. But then we realize, oh, there's a relationship between what I'm eating, what I'm thinking, and how my body is feeling. Oh, interesting. Okay, great. So then we start to read or hear about, maybe we should take a fast or we should do this or we should do that. And then, you know, uh, this can all be really, really useful. If you've never done a fast or a cleanse in your entire life, then it can be very, very useful. But 
just like anything else, we can become obsessed and addicted to it. And then we start messing with our eating habits and we can somehow also fuel some past behavioral patterns that could be negative as well. So if we're engaging in anything, we have to really check our intention and understand like that the purpose of yogic fasting or cleansing is not a diet or a weight loss routine. The idea with any sort of fasting or cleansing is to reestablish a better homeostasis point in the body, in the digestive system, in, you know, and, and help us achieve more optimal health. So if we have sickness, disease, or long periods of injuries that don't heal, sometimes resetting the body can be really, really useful. So this can be done in a fast or a cleanse. It can be extremely useful because you know our body is made up of the ingredients that we put into it. And sometimes we have ingredients that we put in a long, 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 long time ago that are still hanging around in the body that are less than ideal. So these can be, you know, toxins, impurities, heavy metals, other just things that are, you know, residue in the body. Also uh, thoughts and behavioral patterns that have had its impact on our posture, on our muscle, uh, you know, our muscle tone and the consistency of the, the body on a cellular level. So when we're thinking about any sort of fast or cleanse, the intention is to reestablish homeostasis and to really get ourselves into, you know, a more balanced point. So then based on that, we, you know, I would probably recommend not to do, not to do it ad hoc, but consider working with, you know, a nutritionist or a naturopath and do some testing to figure out, you know, which of my organs, like how are my organs functioning? You know, uh, if you work with a you know a Chinese medicine doctor, they can test to see which of the organs are functioning optimally. And then if you you know always come with low liver chi, or you always show up with mucus in the digestive system, you know, or dampness, something like that, then we can think about you know doing a small cleanse or a fast. They're different to really help achieve balance in whatever is out of balance within you. But what we don't want to do is jump on the next trend. I've never tried intermittent fasting, but I know it is really, really trendy right now. Um, I don't know. I don't really know anything about it, so I can't really speak anything to it. But I do know that that what I've seen in terms of our diet culture in the Western world is that we pop from one thing to another as the quick fix to giving, you know, creating, basically whipping our body into some form that is socially acceptable. And I think, it, it, you know, people treat fasting in that way sometimes too. So what we want to do is really, really be conscious and aware that we're not engaging in repeating that cycle of diet culture and, you know, uh, ego identification with the physical form of the body and that we're Approaching anything from the perspective of optimal health. Make sense? Yeah. Good. If you have a question and you would feel more comfortable typing it into the chat, that is also okay. All right. So if you don't feel comfortable unmuting yourself, you can type it into the chat as well. Aga, do you have a question or you're just going close to the... No, I just see the, the hand going there. No. <laughs> Good. Mariah, okay. Let's unmute you. Hi. Hi. So I have a question about... Um, having a teacher. Uh -huh. So I know that that's really important, especially in a type of practice like Ashtanga. Um, where I live, there's not, there's not Ashtanga anywhere around here. So I pretty much do everything just at home, you know, mostly with like OMSTARS videos and stuff um, and go to workshops when I can. But how much like should I seek to find like a physical teacher? Like if I can, you know, travel a couple hours once a month, would that be enough? Or 
where, where does that balance maybe sort of fit? Oh, that's a good question. You know, I feel like, I feel like for myself, my teacher was in India mm-hmm. and I would travel to India and come back and practice on my own for months without any guidance. And then I would go back to India, you know, every year or, or sometimes in a two year break and then spend time and practice. So this was my relationship with the teacher is to have like a little bit of guidance. And then it was really my practice most of the time. And if that's, it, it, you know, it depends. There are some students that they need to have daily contact with the teacher. Maybe it sounds like you're not like that because you've been doing it mostly on your own. So you want to find the the, the importance of finding a relationship with a teacher is that if there are doubts, you want to have somebody that you can check in with. If you feel like you're losing the inspiration for practice, you want to have a place where you can go get inspired again. You want to have at least you know, a connection in so that you don't feel like you're alone, so that you don't feel like, well, it's just me on my own and I don't know where I am. If you get lost, injured, confused, you don't know what to do that's next in the practice, you want to have some contact. You know, how frequent that contact is, it depends on you. You know, it depends on you. What you're inspired by, what you feel comfortable with. You know, uh, for me, it was enough to go to India once a year. That was enough for me. There are some students that like, they, uh, you know, if I'm, if I have, if I have students, then it's difficult for people to practice with me regularly because I'm traveling here, I'm going there, this sort of thing. But uh, Tim and I were talking about as we're building this new space here in Miami, which is still under construction now, thankfully, but all of the construction workers socially distance, um, then what, uh, what we're both thinking about doing here is making a little bit of like a season where you people can come and practice for more than a week. So like I would teach for a month or Tim would teach for a month and then that would give people more of a chance to kind of come and settle into the practice. So we're thinking about that because we do start to have, you know, students that want to come and practice with us for more than a week. And sometimes it takes more than a week to let the practice settle in, you know, even though it's not as big of a trip. Part of the thing with going to India and staying for at least a month is you take like one week to get over the jet lag, you know, and then one week to get over the culture lag and then you're settle. And then you, and then on the fourth week, you finally start to do the work. And then if you, you know, so if you only stay for a week, you never really get in. But then if you stay for a month, by the end, you've settled. If you stay for two months, then you just continue to work because you're in there. Um, but, you know, India is a different place now as well. It's, uh, you know, has its, uh, you know, it goes through changes just like everything else. So anyhow, find the space that, it, that you're going to get enough inspiration to keep you practicing and build a connection enough so that you don't feel lost and alone and that you have somebody to reach out to, to say, you know, what should I do? You know, like they, like you're joining this class now. So you can say, what should I do? Should I do the next pose? How should I work headstand by myself? Should I use wall? Should I not use wall? These kinds of things. So you have a space to come in and just do a check-in. Does okay. that make sense? Yeah. Thank you. Super. Oh, Lisa, Lisa, you asked a very interesting question in the chat. So Lisa says, how do I balance being a wife, a yoga teacher, and a studio owner? Um, you know, I think I wear many hats. And uh, one, of the, one of the worst questions I feel anybody can ask me is, what do you do? I'm like, what do I do? I exist. I don't know. You know, I'm like, well, I'm a yoga teacher. I'm also a business owner. And, you know, I'm also a writer. And yeah, so what do I do? I'm not sure. Oh, what kind of business? Oh, it's a yoga business. Oh, it's a yoga studio? Yeah, it's a yoga studio. But it's also an online thing that has a lot of technology terms that I don't know what 
talking about half the time. So yeah, there's a technology element, there's this and that and one thing and another. And yeah, so I think it's extremely difficult to balance everything. You know, I think it's really, really difficult to balance everything. I don't think it's easy, but I can give one, uh, one piece of advice that really helped at least Tim and I is that the, we do not share like decision-making responsibility for business ventures. So Tim runs Miami Life Center. Like he's in charge there. He runs Miami Life Center, you know, and he asked me for input, but he's in charge. He's a decision maker there. And, you know, so whatever that is, if I don't agree, it's, it's no problem. It's his decision. With OMSTARS, I'm the decision maker. It's my business. It's my thing. I don't like check in with him, you know, hey, should we do this? Hey, should I, sometimes I talk with him as my husband, but not as a, as sort of a co-director of the business. And the same thing with Miami Life Center. So this is important to create a little bit of healthy balance in our relationship. When we first opened Miami Life Center, we were just you know, we would do every single thing together. So we would wake up in the morning and it would be like practice together and teach together. And then we would like paint the walls of the studio together and put in the classes into the, you know, studio software programming together. And then we would eat together and walk together and sleep together. We were just everything together. And then it started to be nuts because there was no work-life balance. Like we would carry, I just remember one thing, we'd like carry discussions over too fluidly from what should people do in the beginner class and what sort of window treatment should we have in our living room? And next time I want to get soy milk instead of almond milk, you know, and I think that teacher is doing a good job. And did you call my mom back? It was just, you know, it's just, it's too much, you know? And it started to just be this like, what, like, who are you now? Am I talking to you as my husband or am I talking to you as, as a business owner? Like what, what, what hat are you wearing right now? So for us, it was extremely important to create a little bit of division in that way. And um, I'm not the easiest, like we're, we have an, a wonderful marriage. I love, I love Tim immensely. And I think it's been an important act of honesty for us to realize the, you know, just the limitations of, well, we can't do everything together. There have to be some, some separation. So you, you have your space and I have my space. And that's been just really, really useful. Okay, everyone, any last questions? I think Catherine's cat should ask a question. I don't know if you've seen during the course of this week, but Catherine has a very cute dog. Sometimes we see her very cute dog. Lisa also has a very cute dog that I did not see this week. It's been nice to see your animals that have come in. Nice to see also just the family space. Aga also has a very cute cat, this Paloma today. Oh, thank you, Lisa. Now Lisa's sharing her dog. Extremely cute. The first time that Lisa joined the Mice, oh, there's another dog. I thought there was only one. There's two of them. First time Lisa joined the Mysore session, this very cute, fluffy dog uh, stood between the camera and Lisa. It was extremely cute, but I said, I kept saying, Lisa, I'm so sorry. Can you move the dog? Because I cannot see what's happening, you know? So I love dogs. I love all animals. Tim and I both really, really love animals. One day, one day we'll get a dog, you know? Okay. So I saw there was one other question that came in the chat. What's my favorite part about teaching online? Gosh, I don't know. I mean, I feel like the potential to really share yoga with people all over the world is really awesome. I mean, look at the community that we have here of people in different cities and different time zones that are all able to join and to have that accessibility available in the comfort of our own home is really, really awesome. I, I love the idea of 
just facilitating people's entry into the practice. So this feeling of kind of, you know, a global community and making it more accessible for people. There are so many people that are intimidated about coming into a yoga studio that feel like they don't fit in or it's against their religion or something like that. And then they can try a video in the comfort of their own home and feel less intimidated and get comfortable with the practice and get a whole practice established just through the online space, which I think is really, really wonderful. But it's so nice to see. I've also really enjoyed the Zoom classes because although I have a lot of classes that I do online, even live classes online, it's just been really nice to actually see the students on the Zoom format. So I can see, oh, look what you're doing. Oh, look what you're doing. You know, and it's really, really touching to see how we all integrate yoga into our lives in different ways. You know, we have, uh, you know, we roll out the mats here, roll out the mat there. Some people have, you know, elaborate practice spaces and some people are practicing in their kitchen, you know, and some people are practicing in the, shoved into the mini space between the bedroom and, you know, the sofa chair. And so it's just, it's really, really nice. It's really very honest and real to see that. And I, you know, I just really, I do really, really appreciate it. Yeah. Definitely. We plan on keep doing, to keep doing some of the, you know, the, the, the Zoom classes going forward, particularly, you know, uh, it's just been such a really, really, really awesome response from everyone. So as long as, as long as you, the students keep wanting the online Zoom experiences, we'll keep doing that as long as Zoom is alive as well. So Catherine, I see you typed a question. So let's, uh, I'm going to read your question. So Catherine asks, Another question on the work-life balance, running a business and practicing, and then writing, cleaning, dog walking, (laughs) all of it. How do you attribute to your success or how do you explain how you've managed to balance your energy levels in order to achieve balance in each area? You know, that's really interesting, Catherine, that you asked that because when we were talking about your practice today, how um, you said that, you know, you see many, many clients and then you know, you come back and you have to walk the dog and it's late and this sort of thing. I was thinking that, you know, I get tired from teaching. So whether it's teaching, even here, like I, there's, there's an energetic exchange that happens, you know, with teaching, like I'm, you know, and it's a presence, there's, there's something that, there's like something that happens that beyond, you know, me telling you to straighten your leg. And even in class, it's beyond the physical assist. There's something energetically that happens in the, in the presence of yoga. It's the holding of space. That's very, very, very interesting. And then you are extremely sensitive. So I would imagine that your ability to take on your client's energy is very high, that you're almost a sponge for what's coming in at you. And that's also what's creating such healing because the people come in and they're able to just let go, let go, let go. But then it's landing on you, you know? And if you don't have a system to let go, if you don't have a ritual for you to come back to you, then I almost feel like then there's all this stuff that's stuck in you that's not you. And like, what's the chance to get out? Practice is great. You're coming back to yourself. And that might be why you feel like, oh, I have all these injuries in my practice because you're processing the stuff that, that you've taken on in one form or another. And it, it, it has to leave. And so it might it take a little weird, like, oh, why does this hurt? Why does that hurt? Well, this is what very often happens with people who are healers is that they end up taking on some of the pain of the people that are in, you know, that are in their presence that are, that are seeking healing. And if they're not able to, to just to release all of that, then they'll have to work it out somehow. So it's so good that you have the practice, but I'm wondering if you have some ritual 
that you can do, whether it's small, doesn't have to be very, very long, that, that will allow you to claim your space. One of the things that I do that if I don't do it, I start to go a little bit bonkers is I need time 100% alone every day, like silence and alone. And whether it's, it can be simple as a walk around the block by myself, or it can be, I came back from teaching and I parked the car and I don't go inside right away. I stop and I close my eyes and just everything is off. And I take a moment, maybe just like a few moments. And then what will often happen for me, and this may sound really weird, but I have uh, images that will roll through my mind if I close my eyes at, after I'm done teaching. And it's usually image, it's, sometimes it's images of the students, but sometimes it's just shapes and things like that. And then it'll pitter out. And then there's a moment, I open my eyes. I'm like, okay, I can move it. You know, uh, it, it could also be, a, if you're more kinesthetically sensitive, it could be a hand washing, um, you know, uh, ritual. It could be, you know, if it, it depends on what form, you know, you're going to find that's, that's uh, you know, better for you to get the release, whether it's a physical thing where you, where you go through a very specific hand washing or, or essential oil thing with the hands or, and then the smell comes in or whether it's a sound or combination of all. Some ritual that you do at the end of the day, I think would be extremely useful or, or, or at sporadic times throughout the day, extremely useful. So I, I, that's, that, that helps. That helps me dramatically. If I don't do that, I, I find myself getting more and more ungrounded and I feel like I'm running from one thing to another. And then I, I end up feeling like I'm a crazy person by the end of the day. I'm like, I get it all done, but I'm like, ah, now I got to go to bed, bed, you know, and it's not very relaxing. It's like kind of stressed out. Tim's like, are you okay? And I'm like, I'm fine. Get out of the way. <laughs> you know. So yeah, I hope you can find some ritual like that. Yeah, super. Okay, David, you're asking about the Ashtanga Practitioners Intensive. Yes. Well, not to be in the commercial. Oh, also Valentina is asking the same question about that. Not to be a little commercial for that, but we are actually in process of taking that uh, whole program into a longer form, uh, longer format program that will happen online because people are not going to be able to travel uh, to come here for a month. Like, it's just not feasible. You know, there are a lot of people that applied from overseas, from Europe, even Canada. We don't know when the borders are going to open, if they're going to open. We don't know if the plane tickets are going to be affordable. We don't know if, you know, Miami Beach is going to, when they're going to allow hotels to take, uh, you know, tourists again. And uh, if it's safe even to go in the airport, these kinds of things. So we're going to do it online this year. And it's going to be a long format program. And uh, the Ashtanga Practitioners Intensive is really for uh, someone that's dedicated. You don't need to want to be a teacher, but a dedicated student that you're looking to deepen your practice and to kind of take practice into, you know, uh, like just a, a level of depth and dimension. If you are a teacher, of course, it's going to add depth and meaning to, you know, the, the way that you share the Ashtanga method. We, so, so I think that this uh, is, a, is a great course for people that are interested in developing a deeper relationship to the Ashtanga method. Um, we are also developing a course specifically for teachers. And uh, the course is specifically for teachers. It happened after our, the long format 200-hour uh, course and would be a 100-hour course. And the, the, the course that we're developing for teachers is focused primarily on how to properly make the Ashtanga Yoga method accessible. So how to teach 
from a perspective of accessibility and inclusivity rather than from the perspective of, you know, dogma and absolutism. So this is something that really, I really believe needs developments in the Ashtanga tradition because we're kind of winging it out there. You know, we don't really know when it's like what, what modifications are appropriate to give at what level and how to, how to safely modify certain asanas so that, you know, so, so that, so that it is safe for all different types of bodies at all different ages and that sort of thing. So that's going to, that'll come after, but it'll all, it'll all, we're going to be posting relatively soon about that, but this is, you know, where we're, where we're going and, uh, whether we continue, whether we ever do another online, one of those, I don't know because we don't know what the future will be, but for right now, this is our plan for kind of this summer. Yeah. So I, you know, I asked David to say that so we could make a commercial for the Ashtanga Practitioners Intensive and our accessible Ashtanga training. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just to, um, would you be using the like set of people that had already signed up or would you, I don't even know if I could financially make it work. That was why I didn't actually end up yeah. pursuing No, it, I mean, but... we're going, it'll, it'll be, a, the online option will be, will be a little bit cheaper. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, we haven't figured out what the price is, but we're definitely going to make it available to the people that have already signed up for the, you know, for the the one month uh, option for sure. Would would there be another or like? Would you make it open to more students, or would it, or is it, or is it done? No, the idea is to make it open to more students, and then okay, and then cool. again, we're we're going to again, we're going to make the price point a little bit lower because it's going to be online. So mm-hmm. then, uh, you know, in order to make the course work, and and we're, we're, what's what's cool about having it on having it online is that we're we're talking to we haven't got it all firmed up, but we're talking to some some other guest teachers that will be able to have come on. Uh, because it's online, so we're so so that's pretty cool. So we're we're excited about um you know what the what the actual teacher lineup will be. Cool. Sorry, Kino, are you talking about the one that starts July third? Yes. Okay. We're not sure if it's going to start July third or if it's going to start a little bit after. Uh, we just need to get it get the programming all together. I think Tim had a meeting about that upstairs while I've been downstairs. Okay. Well, I'll be looking out for information. I signed up for the one week with you where the training is 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. So I'll go through that <laughs> and see what... Yeah, no, that, those times change now that they're online. So then it's the 10 to 12 practice and the 2 to 4 in the afternoon. So in, the, in our studio, we do 8 to 10 because that was a time that fit in to in the Mysore break. But again, now that we're on the in the in the world of Zoom, then this is the time that we'll be doing. I, I prefer to teach ten to twelve because uh, if you see me coming in like two minutes late, this is usually because I've been practicing and then I'm somehow running to try to eat something and take a quick shower and then I'm like, oh, I gotta go. It's, oh my god, it's a little ten o two. I better start. <laughs> so okay, cool. Thank you. Yeah, cool. All right, let's do the closing prayer. Swasti Prajabhyaha Baripalayantam Nyayena Margena Mahim Mahishaha Gobramanebhyaha Shubhamastunityam Lokaha Samastaha Sukino Bhavantu Om Shanti 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 Thank you very much, everyone. It's been such a pleasure for me to share this time with you. Thank you so much. Thanks, everyone. Okay, bye. Keep practicing. See you again soon. Bye. 
Hey there, it's Kino here. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in to my podcast. Your support and your time and your attention really mean a lot to me. If you're enjoying this podcast series, you can find the full-length videos on my online channel, OMSTARS. And that's at www.omstars.com. You can redeem a 14-day free trial and get access to our full library of over 3,000 classes and also practice yoga with me online. I'd also love to see you in class sometime. So you can find my full live in-person teaching schedule on my website, which is kinoyoga.com. And if you haven't checked out my books, I'd absolutely be honored if you'd check those out. You can find those available at any online bookseller. The Yoga Inspiration Podcast is designed to keep you inspired to get on the mat. And I hope you're leaving each episode with a little glimmer and spark of the spirit, which is the true heart of the yoga method. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be filled with love. Namaste.